this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the books of reading. In the world of books <laughs> reading, even. Not just in the books and reading. The books and reading. This episode 254, recording on Thursday, March 29th, 2018. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. From the books and reading. See, I can't get away with anything these days. That's, I can't, I just, no mistakes. You know no mistakes. when the opening read goes sideways, it's going to be an interesting one. But I, We're a little, both a little bit sideways today. The spring break here, there's stuff going on. We're, we're, we're going to organic annotated mention. We were just yes. recording annotated yesterday. We're working on a thing. Rebecca's working on a script. By the time you're listening to this, the first two episodes of uh, annotated season two will be up. And available uh, as of right now, as of recording, the first one called Saving Shakespeare is up. Uh, the next one coming out uh, is called The Dictionary War. And then we just recorded a third one, the third episode, which is really, this is what we call a tease in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's related to a story we've talked about on this show. It, it talked is. about at length at this show, I would say. Yeah, if you um, are a fan of this podcast, you're going to know some things about the third episode of Annotated. And I just got to say, if you haven't tried Annotated and you listen to the show, which if you're hearing this, you are because that's how listening works. Is that how works. it works? Um, yeah, that's right. In ears and sound waves. Um, boom. Uh, but you're <laughs> going to like Annotated. You you just are. I, I, I would really be shocked if you didn't. It, the episodes are 15, well, yeah, 15 to 25 minutes long. The third episode of this season will be the longest one we've done yet. I think it's going to clock in real short of, just short of 30 minutes but so it's like it's in that length where you you know it's sort of meant to be a commute kind of thing we can start and finish it in most people's commute um it's scripted we write the show we review the show uh the one i just rec- we just record has the most interviews i've ever done for for an episode um i did five interviews for it um and the dictionary war is really fun as well about a a a, a, ver- a, a, a something that's influential but unknown which is kind of the sweet spot for annotated, I find like that's one of those places we like to live in. You can go find it. Go to bookwrite.com slash annotated if you want to find it on the website. It's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's in your podcatcher of choice. Anywhere you get your podcasts, we are there. And if you have already listened to Annotated or you you do start listening to it and you like it and you would like there to be more, you know, as you, you can hear from listening to it, it takes a lot more time and effort. Um, to make these things, so it's even more important than in this, you know, stuff we we do and just sort of talk at each other for an hour that people listen to it um, because to sell sponsorships enough that we can even you know get close to breaking even on the episodes. It's going to take us a little while to get there, um, and the more rating and reviewing and the sharing of, especially on Apple Podcasts, really helps us out the most. And so that is my um, tin cup uh, plea to you to get over there and, and do it. Also, there's 98 written reviews. And it's bothered me, I have to admit. You know, oh, you need I, I to need crack a hundred? It's like rolling the odometer over. Yeah, just get just get, get it taken care of. Um, preferably if you say something nice, but, you know, it's your prerogative. So that's Annotated, sponsored this season by Penguin Random House Audio. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring. Should give them a shout out. 
Uh, and there we go. What else we got cooking? I feel like there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff cooking in the book world these days. There um, is where, in the books and reading. Um, well, you know, we should in do our first actual sponsor. You know, the people that pay us to do this stuff. We yes. should talk about that. Yeah, this is my read too, isn't it? You're mm-hmm. like, hey, Jeff, do what you're supposed to do. That was a hint. That was Rebecca saying, Jeff, <laughs> do what you're supposed to do. So here we go. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is brought to you by the MIT Press. Here's the intro. Imagine a future in which many human emotions are extinct, otherwise known as my life, and emotional masseuses try to help people recover those lost sensations. Individuals rely on personal assistant robots to navigate daily life. Students are taught not to think, but to employ search programs. Companies protect their intellectual property by erasing the memory of their employees. What? And then it would, then it would imagine what it would be like to be a sweet, smart 13-year-old girl from the 21st century who wakes from a cryogenically induced sleep into this strange world. This is the compelling story told by Carm, Carme Torras in this prize-winning science fiction novel, Vestigial Heart. Carme Torras is a prominent roboticist and novelist. Now, there's one you don't you hear that often. Her story invites us to ponder deeper questions. What kind of robot companions do humans want or need? What is the responsibility of scientists who design robots? Is the future you'll read about in the Vestigial Heart inevitable? That's The Vestigial Heart by Carme Torras. Thank you for sponsoring this show. I think I talked myself into that book as I read it. I have to say. Yeah, I think so too. And you can, uh, if you have talked yourself into it, you can check out mitpress.mit.edu slash bookriot. mitpress.mit.edu slash book riot. It's like, what kind of robots do we need? And then we just speak in computer code like that. Like we're just reading dot slash <laughs> dot, dot slash. edu slash dot one zero zero one 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 zero zero. I wonder if the author of this book knows about that robot run bookstore that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. <sighs> I, I'm sad to say no one has yet given us a detailed report about the, the, the killer um, robots. So after the show, we were talking to Sharifa, who is our co-worker. She and Jen host the science fiction fantasy podcast that we do called SFF. Yeah. And of course, Sharifa had many mental models. She did. Killer robots. And they were all from hand. the 70s. <laughs> and they were all from the 70s, the floppy armed, like accordion, <laughs> sort of like the, the Michelin man version of a, of a robot where for some reason they don't have joints and they're mostly a giant sentient airbag. Um, <laughs> so... That was her. Slightly less terrifying to me than yeah. than the Terminator with red eyes and like metal teeth. It does um, feel like a setup for um, you know a couple of years ago that was there was that horror novel called Horror Store that was basically yes. it was Grady Hendrix I think and it was set in what was basically an IKEA like it feels like this mm-hmm. is the plot of his next book. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's a really yeah the, the killer killer book killer bookstore from, robots uh, from China. All right. You know, so the New York Times. Just, the New York so Times the New is York on it, Times. Rebecca. Yeah, we were kind of <laughs> Tell wondering. Me about this story. We've been wondering <laughs> like when and how the coverage of what was happening in publishing in relation to the Me Too movement was going mm-hmm. to show up. And this week, the New York Times ran a piece about canceled deals and pulped books and how the publishing industry is responding to sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. Um, and there's you know, there's a wide range of responses being issued by publishers and by booksellers and by the folks who control 
what books get made and where they get sold, um, including, you know, that a book that's been um, illust- like a, a r- great children's book. Um, the illustrator was accused of sexual harassment, uh, David Diaz. And so that version of the book is not going to be made anymore. It was due out next month. Folks are sad about that. Um, there are notes in this piece about um, how publishing some publishing houses have swift, swi- uh, swiftly, there we go, uh, mm-hmm. reacted to these things. Like ba- even back in October, um, Penguin Press canceled a forthcoming book um, about the 2016 election by John Heileman and Mark Halperin um, after it emerged that Halperin had sexually harassed multiple women at ABC News when he was in charge of political coverage there. But then other houses have issued what this piece calls bland statements or taken no action at all. Um, like mm-hmm. Henry Holton Company continues to publish Bill O'Reilly following uh, the New York Times report that O'Reilly had settled claims by multiple women about sexual harassment and verbal abuse. And uh, let's see, Hachette is expanding the use of moral clauses and author conduct clauses in book contracts, Mm. which allow them to cancel the book deal if the author is credibly accused of unethical behavior. Um, And there's a note here about how the industry is overwhelmingly female. About Women account for about 80% of people who work in publishing. So the publishers are facing... Um, more pressure perhaps than in other industries, but coming from within their own ranks to take a firm stance against this. Um, It recaps some of the pieces of Anne Ursu's uh, big story about what was happening in Kidlet. They talk about James Dashner and Jay Asher. And then, of course, um, there's some discussion of Sherman Alexie and um, how those things are being handled. And probably the, uh, the more complicated, or I think the the piece of it that we're going to see work out for a lot longer is the second half of this piece. They're talking to booksellers and librarians about what are you doing with these books or are you doing anything different? Um, And the range Mm. of responses there is really interesting from like, we've taken these off our shelves and we won't be reordering them to um, some stores are removing Sherman Alexie's books and working on featuring works by other Native American authors. And then there are booksellers, which uh, we've talked about this before as well, who are still wrestling with like, oh, but I know that author and he's really nice or he's been to the store or he's been a friend of the store and we just don't want, we don't want to like believe it's true. So we're not doing anything. Um, Mm. But, you know, not, there's no new revelation here, but the top line is that enough has been going on in publishing and the responses to sexual harassment in publishing that now there's meat on the bones for the New York Times to be talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm surprised. I'm not surprised by much. I guess I I keep waiting for a big New York Times breaking news piece about Me Too and publishing. Mm-hmm. Like this is a roundup. I mean, there is some. Not, there's not that much original reporting. It's it's kind of a ten thousand foot view of what's going on right now. Um, you know, why didn't they break the Sherman Alexi stuff? Like, why didn't they break some of the other things? Like, I think that's what I'm waiting for. That the Times has, in America at least, unparalleled investigative journalism, you know, Mm -hmm. resources. I don't just mean money, but, you know, know know-how, skill, connection. People will talk to the Times because they are the Times. And I I was thinking about this a little bit when I saw this in the show notes, is they do have some publishing world reporters, 
But I, they're not really like Alexandra Alter is great. She's a great publishing book world reporter. But is she an investigative reporter? I mean, is it the kind of thing where she's going to talk to people anonymously? And they're, you know, I just don't know the skill set around their publishing coverage. Um, the people they have in entertainment seem to be both. They have more bodies because it's more of you know it's a bigger industry. Um, but there seems to be more capability there. And it, I'm circling around this. Thing, which I knew to be true and I've thought about before, the bandwidth for investigative journalism around books in America is just so small. It is. Is what I'm getting at. There's mm-hmm. just not that many people. Um, I forgot the woman's name who kind of was the the focus or epicenter or the catalyst, whatever you want to call it, uh, around the Sherman Alexie stuff that then got pushed and then NPR took it up. But a lot of the work had been done in terms of organizing people, people had contacted each other. But there's, there, you know there are stories out there um, that need more of a, you know, a, a, a Maggie Haberman. They need a Woodward and Bernstein. You know, mm-hmm. they, need, they need that kind of investigation. We just don't have, in the book world, they'd have to come from some other industry. They'd have to come from some other beat, I guess, to, to cover it. Yeah, there aren't. You're right. There aren't like dedicated people really covering publishing in the investigative parts of the New York Times. Um, And I think also that what's happening here, too, is we're seeing most of these stories are about authors within the publishing industry. But Mm -hmm. authors are like authors are not the publishing industry, (laughs) you know, like they're I don't even know how to describe the position that they have in relation to how books get made. But well, I think, I think they're that, like sports. They're like the players, right? But the, yeah. the managers and owners also <clears throat> right. are super important. Um, yes. And in terms of structure, the, the, the publishers, agents, editors, they're more important you know, and in a way, you know, we're hearing to use the analogy of what we've seen in Hollywood. Like we've we've heard a lot of stories about actors, and that like that's happening. We're hearing stories about actors, and people are like not going to watch Kevin Spacey's TV shows anymore. He's getting kicked out of movies. But the big story in Hollywood was Harvey Weinstein because he's that's the big right. guy who controlled how the movies got made, and he was breaking people's careers with the threat Mm -hmm. of, well, he did break people's careers and he was manipulating people in the industry with the threat that he might break their career if they didn't go along with what he wanted or if they didn't keep the secret, at least after they rejected him, you know, like we've all read those stories. Um, And I think that the moment, if there is going to be a moment, and I really hope that there will be, where the New York Times breaks a big story about Me Too and publishing, it's going to be from in like really inside publishing. Yep. It will be about a publisher, um, about someone right. high up at a publishing company who has been affecting the careers of authors, probably the careers of women authors, um, and for the women who work under these people um, in the publishing world, you know, from high atop a corporate ladder. Um, I think like there are, we've hinted around it before. There are a couple of names that I would, that I'm ready to see (laughs) in the paper. Mm -hmm. Um, And at this point, I kind of suspect that there are NDAs that have been signed and settlements that have been made and that that's the only reason these stories haven't broken yet. Um, Some of them have many people who could contribute to a piece. Or is anyone covering them? Or maybe, right. Maybe there's not. Is anyone anyone on the beat? Right. or Or they don't know like who to like, I mean, I have stood at, 
like publishing parties where multiple women told stories about the same person. So they do like victims of some of these people know each other. Um, and perhaps they don't know who to reach out to in the media or the media doesn't know how to find them. Um, if there's nobody on the beat, it just seems very strange to me that, um, and maybe this, maybe the story's in the works and I don't know. Um, but it seems strange to me that it could that be, hasn't yeah, I could be broken. I mean, I think what you're circling around, I'm circling around too, is sort of this question is like, is there an equivalent structural figure to Harvey Weinstein in the publishing world? Because we've heard, you've heard more stories than I have. I've heard a couple stories, but again, I don't know what's beyond that. Because like the stories we've heard about, I don't think amount quite to what we've heard about Weinstein, but we haven't heard all the stories. We don't know. know. Like, is there is there something rotten in the state of Denmark to that degree or just regular gross that we're kind of expecting at this point sort of table stakes mm-hmm. for dudes in industries like this we you know how bad is it is the question that isn't really being answered yeah no, and right. even a, even a piece saying there's this person or whatever and you know even if even like a Lauren Stein piece which is this is gross but it's not this other thing um, that we're wondering about. That's work that needs to be done. And I just don't know, I just don't know who has the bandwidth out there in the world of books and reading, frankly, to go do that work that has the, has the credentials, that has the connections, that has the trust of people that would talk to them, that has the six months of full-time work it would take to throw at it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and the insurance. Which, it, well, right. And then the legal backing <laughs> and then the whatever else would be involved in it. But it also makes me realize that like, think of the other stories about mm-hmm. the world of books and readings that aren't getting that kind oh, of yeah. attention. Like even outside of this, like it isn't, it's an undercovered industry. It really is. I think, I, I honestly believe it's an undercovered industry for the amount of stories and things that, that go on. Um, there are people oh, doing yeah. work, they cover books, they cover new books, but so much of book coverage is about reviews and has been mm-hmm. for so long that, you know, the New York Times, which they do amazing work, and this is not about what they should or shouldn't be doing. I don't want to run their business. But look at all the effort they put on a weekly basis to getting books reviewed. Right. Like, think of that was instead pointed at covering the world of books and reading. Like, it, wouldn't that be so, it'd be so different. Think of the stories we're not getting in favor of review coverage. I'm not mm-hmm. saying you're right or wrong, but like that time goes somewhere else. It's being, it's being allocated somewhere else. Yeah. So, and, and publishing, I, I think that's is, kind of what got me thinking about this story for whatever Yeah. Reason. And I think you're um, right. I think so that publishing is compared to Hollywood relatively small and the story would have to be big enough for like a regular New York times investigative reporter to devote time and resources to breaking some big story for the New York times about like, it would have to be a really big story. Um, I think to be worth the New York times breaking it. And we don't know how big those stories, how, how big they potentially are. Right. And even if Alexandra Alter decided she wanted to cover the story, that means that their 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 lead beat reporter for publishing isn't covering anything else related to books and reading while she's working on right. that story. Like, which I don't know if that's good or bad either. That would just be the case for that particular one. So there's several structural problems. I think getting to the the place where we feel like we're kind of behind the curve where we thought we might be with the world of books and reading and Me Too, and I and I think it comes across mm-hmm. um, as you read this piece is. There, there is no. There doesn't seem to be that many people available to dig. Um, right yeah, now. yeah, and it's it's interesting because like the Hollywood list of names is pretty long now, and the publishing list of names not so much. Like there's no. you know there's a handful, but there should be 
um, there should be more stories breaking faster and sooner for, I mean, it, it's a, you could put it this simply, there's no Hollywood reporter equivalent for books. Right. There's, yeah, that there's they, just co- they just and, cover the world. They just do the beat reporting and they get stuff and, or variety or wherever else you want to go. There's just no, because it, books don't have the wattage or no one cares or whatever. It's all point at review coverage. I don't know, but that's, that's the, that's the, and, and notice what I'm not even mentioning. I'm not even mentioning the Washington post because uh, they, they don't have the book infrastructure that even right. the times does, which is limited. Um, so there's a real, wh- whatever you want to say about, you know, journalism and Facebook and Google and local news and whatever. I think one thing here I can say with some degree of certainty is there isn't enough journalistic bandwidth to do books justice at this point. Mm -hmm. There just isn't. Yeah, I think Um, you're right. So there's that. All right. Speaking of covering things to cover things, (laughs) you know, Publishers Weekly, they do their thing, but like it's in their title. They're Publishers Weekly. (laughs) You know, like they're they're on the side of publishing where they need, you know, like it's – anyway. Um, I don't know why this – this story came up now, but I think it's worth checking in. What got you to to want to look at this story again about the buy buttons? It just came across the. It came across my dashboard as like this is a thing that's here to stay now. Um, like yeah. we we talked when Amazon announced this a, a little over a year ago that they were allowing third party sellers to basically win the buy button on the book on on book pages that if a third party seller was offering a better price maybe than the publisher was directly or who knows how Amazon does this that um, a person searching for a, a copy of a book could end up buying it from a third party seller rather than from the publisher. And of course, publishers were very upset about this. Um, It's, you know, there were this main buy button on the book page was going directly previously from Amazon stock, which guaranteed that publishers and authors would be paid Mm -hmm. for the purchases. But these third party sellers don't have to pay royalty to the authors. Um, presumably the book has already been purchased once by them. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But now we have found out this week or Publishers Weekly is reporting this week that um, this is no longer like an experiment that Amazon is doing. This is here to stay. Um, Amazon has allowed third-party sellers to start to compete for the buy buttons in all of its other categories as well, apparently. So um, they are urging publishers to monitor the buy buttons. Um, mm-hmm. I guess as a like pay attention to who's got the buy buttons on your book's pages. And maybe if you're not happy that third party sellers are winning them, you need to do some things with your pricing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, one interesting results found there was a study um, that tracked 2,700 third party sellers and, uh, and they said they were surprised how often third-party sellers win the buy button. According to him, third-party sellers win the buy button on 5% of titles on an average day. At most, third-party sellers win the buy button on 15% of titles. Um, so I don't know, 5% is that... An, uh, then are they cannibalizing used sales if those are winning it? Because they said then that each book offered by a third-party seller was about 33% off its price. So on an aggregate basis, how many sales are the publisher is a publisher losing to third party sellers, assuming for a moment that they aren't reselling the book that was bought legitimately somewhere else? I guess the concern we talked about this on the show, like where would these other new books that could pass for new books come from? Mm-hmm. There aren't that many sources, right? Like, are there enough review copies 
to like damage it, even if they were all being sold. I, I, the math doesn't still make sense to me. I don't know what you think. About yeah, this. there are definitely not enough review copies of almost any title to to be damaging to the final yeah. sales numbers. Like I can only think of a couple books in my publishing career where I heard about, you know, like, oh, they did 10,000 galleys. And in that situation, it was like those were going out not just to reviewers, but they were going out to bloggers and to Goodreads giveaways and to like all sorts of pre-publication buzz building things where you're giving away early copies of the books to people who don't work in the industry necessarily, Mm -hmm. but who like books and that you're hoping to get buzz from. Um, They're I I think publishing is flailing here about how to solve this problem. Like the clear solution to me would be if you want to solve this problem, it's a pricing problem. Um, And Mm. they're not going to, they're just not going to win all of those auctions for this buy button, basically, unless Mm -hmm. they're willing to go really low. So they've got to figure out, you know, what the floor is, I guess, on what what they're willing to do for pricing for say a new hardcover when they know they're competing against some of these third party sellers, but it's, you like to feel like, you know, who you're fighting against. And so I think that publishers are going that they are going in that direction, going against people who resell not galleys, but finished review copies. So, um, like, uh, you know, I get, galleys in the mail of a book months before it comes out and then pretty close to publication date the publisher follows up with a finished hardcover edition because if you're re- if you're writing reviews they want your coverage to be quoting from the final right. version of the book um, and some folks do sell their review copies online or they pop up on eBay. And so like Simon and Schuster and some of the other publishers as well have been slapping stickers on to the book jackets of those finished copies that say review copy, not for resale. Um, And they've asked Simon and Schuster spokespeople if this is in response to the buy button problem. And what Simon and Schuster said was that it's in response to the proliferation of review and promotional copies being sold by third parties. Um, my read on that is that it has more to do with eBay. Um, this could just be yeah. like the bubble that I'm in, but I see lots of authors upset that like it pops up on Twitter. An author is upset because they've been Googling their name and they have found someone selling the galley of their book on eBay and they think this cannibalizes a sale that they should have or they don't want the um, unfinished copy of their book to be out in the world and available for sale. And so those I've gotten... I can tell you no publisher is doing this consistently. Like I get, you know, upwards of a hundred books in the mail every week and Mm -hmm. maybe five of them have these stickers on them. So this is not like a widespread attempt to solve this problem. Um, unless the sample that I get in the mail is somehow not representative of the whole. Uh, but I think it makes them feel like they're doing something. Uh, and Hachette is yeah. ta- Hachette's taking measures to prevent review copies from showing up for sale. And like, this is a question of, are you talking about like early review copies that aren't finished? Or are you just talking about like a hardcover that's done that looks like the hardcover you pick up in a bookstore because it is, but you send it to a reviewer and now they've decided to sell it online. Yeah. It makes them feel like they're doing something about the problem, but you're not going to solve this buy button issue in a big industry-wide sense by putting these review copy stickers on it. Yeah, I guess my question would be, is this just replacement inventory that would have been sold through other channels anyway? And so instead of showing up on a a discount table at the Strand downstairs Mm -hmm. where you can buy review copies and maybe they have a marker line on the bottom and maybe they don't, do they go on Amazon instead? Like, is it really just a replacement sale that's happening in a different place? Or is it actually adding to the the total number of, 
I don't know, suspect sales for, for right. lack of a better term. Um, are more non-authorized copies getting into the hands of people than they were before. And I don't know that there's any way to know that because as you and I both know, the, the, the numbers around the used book market are super transparent and very co- comprehensive. And we know a lot. No, none of this is true. Oh yeah, we, we know just know everything. It's great. Yeah. Publishing, so, I don't know uh, if you know this, Jeff, but publishing is really great about sharing data. Yeah. I can imagine though it's a little bit of a throw in the face because I think this is one of those situations where this is a problem condition of the book world that everybody who works close to books knows about mm-hmm. of things getting resold and whatever. But there's sort of a slap in the face quality where it shows up on the buy button of the largest bookstore that's ever existed, essentially, right? right like right. that it's not just in the basement of the strand now. Like it is showing up as the number one choice in 5% apparently of searches uh, for books. And whether or not it actually makes a difference to a bottom line, it, I think it, I could understand it feeling different. Mm-hmm. So that's my, I don't know if it's my generous reading, but it's my sympathetic reading. It's like, really, you're gonna throw this in my face? We, it's kind of a look the other way thing. You don't wanna police it because it's not worth, It's the amount of effort it would take to try to police this is not worth the lost sales. No. But you don't have to look at it, right? You don't want to, you don't, you don't want to be like on the front page of Amazon that like Jim's uh, book barn <laughs> Uh, in uh, Fargo, yeah, uh, got, got the sale where really Hachette wanted it or something well, else like that. So. You know, and also I think so much of publishing often is a reader, not reader, is it like an author services business? And mm-hmm. we've heard folks, we have sat in meetings in publisher conference rooms where we've heard this, that um, publishers often think of themselves as being in the author services business, yeah. keeping the authors happy is an important part of what they do or they perceive it to be an important part of what they do. And that's like, this is, that's certainly an issue that's going to be coming up here. You know, authors checking their Amazon sales, authors looking up their books on Amazon, seeing the buy buttons. Like uh, my sympathy mostly goes to like the low level editors and publicists who probably have to field the panic phone calls from the authors who discover that, like a third party seller won the buy button and it's a galley or it's a review copy or it's just a third party seller and I'm not going to get paid for it. And like all of the angst going on there. And I, I get where the angst mm-hmm. comes from. Um, but also that in the big picture of the industry, uh, I don't, I don't find this to be worth the alarm. Yeah. Yeah. If they were better about digital copies, it's all go away. Yeah. Oh copies. my gosh. If publishing got rid of paper review copies altogether, it would mm. just be the best. They'd save so much money. <laughs> anyway, it would just save so much money. And not to mention that's like, a, the that's a windmill we can tilt at, uh, <laughs> you know, some other time. Uh, why don't you tell that. us about our next sponsor? All right. Our next sponsor this week is InstaRead. InstaRead transforms nonfiction books into 15 minute podcasts, and you can check them out with an unrestricted free seven day trial. So the each InstaRead podcast gives you all the key insights from a nonfiction book, along with a synopsis and analysis and commentary. If you're interested in self-improvement books, business, healthy living, history, psychology, then InstaRead is for you. On one hand, you'll truly understand what's inside the book before you spend days or weeks on reading it. And on top of that, you'll always be in the know as to what the latest nonfiction bestsellers are about. InstaRead can save you a ton of time, and then you can spend that time reading the books you love. So check them out at instaread.co slash bookriot. They have an unrestricted free trial for seven days, and they're offering our listeners a 20% discount on the annual plan. That's instaread.co. 
co slash book riot get smarter with InstaRead. This sounds to me also like a great discovery tool. Like you could yes. listen to a 15 minute podcast built on a nonfiction book and then decide if you're going to read that book. Mm. Like this is uh, you and I, especially as consumers of a lot of nonfiction audiobooks, um, know the feeling of getting through like the first three chapters and then being like the rest of it is just going to be nope. repetition. <laughs> No, <laughs> and, yeah, right. exactly. That's, and then you just really nope right point. out and InstaRead, I think, could help you solve that problem of here is the thing. Do you want to spend six to 12 hours on the whole book or did you get everything you needed from a 15 minute podcast? Right. I, it's a really interesting point about non, it's like the business productivity, personal growth kind of book is like... Mm -hmm. So many like, of do you them really need like, to read every blog post? Do you yeah, need every right. chapter of a Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell book? Probably not. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> it, if it serves the purpose of being enjoyable on its face, just like sure, it, it's just fun. That's a different thing. But like, if you're there to, I don't know, you know, beat Goliath with a tipping point, you then you know, you <laughs> that's a different that's a different you know thing. Um, anyway, how to uh, how to beat Goliath with the tipping point is like if if we fed like an algorithm to name. You've seen that, right? There's one. There's a Malcolm Gladwell title uh, generator oh, website. Oh, I have not, but there. I'm going to Google that. Yeah, well, if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, Barnes and That's Noble funny. and their mm -hmm. crack PR team. Because <laughs> I discovered this, I discovered this link just while randomly. Uh, Browsing oh, the Verge is one of the Verge.com, one of my, you know, one of my sites I look for, yeah. their, you know, technology, culture, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they had a post on this about a Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble's new app makes finding your next read less overwhelming. It's called Browsery, <laughs> which I have to say is only, you know, about 75% as bad as most book related <laughs> app names we get. It's not great. It's but not it's a not shelf pun. Embarrassing. <laughs> It's not a shelf pun, but I can't believe how had, and I was the first one to put this in our book, right? Contributor Slack, our bookish news channel, our Slack, which is just for this kind of thing. And this story was published yesterday. Like where, where are we supposed to find this? Like, this is a, such an inside baseball meta thing, but like, I don't understand. This wasn't Publishers Weekly. It's not in any of the usual suspects. It's on The Verge, which I can't believe. I mean, maybe there's some people on The Verge that read books. I'm sure there are. But are they like, oh, good, Barnes & Noble's new apps? We're like, we're the people you want to – anyway, that's a separate thing. <laughs> so – Yes. Yeah, so, anyway. so there's a new. Have you, did you look at it yet? Have you? Looked I have at not it? I opened the app, yeah. but I've been. I looked okay, at the piece. Either. I know one of our contributors is going to be reviewing the app on the site yep. within the next week or so. So, you can keep an eye out for that. But so, my first question about this was: Is finding your next read actually overwhelming? Um, but I made these noises on the contributor Slack, and several of our contributors were like, actually, for normals who don't work in books, walking into Barnes & Noble, at least from what I hear from my friends, can be kind of overwhelming, or like, all my friends use me as their filter. And so this might, this could be helpful. Um, so I don't know. Like, my house is filled with books I haven't read yet. I usually just pick out the one that looks appealing to me in the moment. Um, maybe people are... Maybe this is really a problem, being overwhelmed by what to Yeah, I think that's choose. a different framing than you and I have talked about before, because we've long sort of joked at her, to each other about like, yeah, discovery is a problem for publishers and authors, but not for readers. And and in the way they, publishers and authors, I think, think about discovery, I think it's not a problem for readers. Like that they don't, that they can't go find books is not the problem. The problem is once you get to the books, mm -hmm. how do you pick up? 
like how do you decide this one rather than right. that one? Which well, yeah, no, I'm not sure I that's was, a I don't know that discovery is the right word for that curation, selection, recommendation, yeah, some other nominalization. How do you, I don't know. Right. But how like, do you narrow it down? Like I think I was telling you offline yesterday that my mom told me recently about a book like I got this book from the library and it had a New York Times bestseller sticker on it and like yeah. I read it and it was the worst. And I was like, Well, first of all, mom, like the New York Times bestseller list doesn't really mean anything. Um, yeah. and I can explain that more to you later, but like, but she was like, well, what do I do when I go to the library? So I get that, that, um, it can be tough to narrow it down. And so Barnes and Noble's solution to this browsery is an online community, much like Goodreads or library thing or Litzy, um, that hooks readers up to give recommendations to each other. The way that it's different is that it, you can only ask like, very specific, open-ended questions. Um, basically, you're seeking targeted recommendations from the other users of the app. So you can say something like, what's your favorite book about Mars? Or does anybody have a good urban fantasy series besides this one that I've already read? Mm -hmm. And then people can offer their answers to you. Uh, yeah. So I think it's it's interesting in that regard, which is, can you interact with it in such a way in which you start, I guess, peeling away layers of non-candidates, right? I guess that's kind of mm, the idea. Rather mm -hmm. than walking in Barnes & Noble and going to the science fiction fantasy section or just going to the new release section, can you give it some information that'll start deselecting things? I think that's what it, uncovering yeah. is, more, and, well, is, since, is more about what we're talking about. Well, and this is like a, basically this is like a P2P situation where... Yes. One user says, what's your favorite book about Mars? And then a bunch of other users answer. But you have to really ask a refined question to get a useful mm -hmm. answer. Like, what's your favorite book about Mars is not actually a good question to ask if you're looking for a book recommendation. Like, if I wanted to read something, it probably wouldn't just be, hey, Jeff, do you have any books about Mars? I would need to be like, what's your favorite novel about Mars? Or have you read any good, like, science Nonfiction about or Mars, what is it? Or, what is it that you like about Mars novels, right? Because maybe you don't, right? Like because like if you get like, a bunch of Mars, like if you say I like The Martian, they're going to give you, you know, Red Planet, which is, the, but it's not. That's not like that's not a right, good comp like, for The Martian. It's I see what they're doing here. Like people yeah. want to, people don't want an algorithm, or like people want to get recommendations from members of the community, from other people who read books, and they want to talk about books with those people, and like we know how that goes. We certainly do. Yeah, but. I, I haven't gotten into the app to see if there's back and forth, like, because you're right. It's, mm. you could, you could open with what's your favorite book about Mars or like, imagine that I walk into my favorite bookstore and I'm like, I want to read, I go to print in Maine and I'm like, Josh, I want to read a book about Mars. He's going to be like, okay, fiction or nonfiction. What's the last book you read about Mars that you liked? What did you like about that book? And I'm like, I liked The Martian and it was funny and like, mm -hmm. it was, com you know, it was compelling and edgy and the science wasn't too wonky. Like that's a, that's going to land me with a totally different Mars book than like, oh, I like Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> or whoever. Right. Um, and I want to learn about the cosmos. Uh, and right. so like those, like the follow-up questions, usually in book recommending, the follow-up questions are more important than the first question, I think, unless the person seeking the recommendation is like super, super specific, which is kind of what happens on the Get Booked podcast that we produce that um, mm -hmm. Jen and Amanda host together. The questions they get from listeners are pretty detailed. You know, it's like a paragraph long thing of here's what's going on and here's what I'm looking for. And they're able to offer 
pretty specific suggestions without a back and forth. Um, so I wonder if that'll be happening. Like maybe readers will use this more effectively than these sample questions in the Verge piece. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, the, here's the thing. I'm. I, I guess like do you. I guess there's a certain amount of selection bias, like the kind of people that will download a Barnes and Noble app for book discovery don't have the same kind of book discovery questions that your mom is talking about looking at a sticker. That's true. Right. Cause right. you already have to know, like we didn't even know about Barnes and Noble's browser. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's that piece of it to like, who's actually going to do that? Like, but for the kind of person who wants to pick up something to read, but doesn't spend a lot of time following books, how to get that person the right book is a fascinating problem for a mm-hmm. lot of different reasons. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons like a book like a girl, the girl in the train gets her or a gone girl or whatever, whatever girl, girl in the field, whatever book you want to talk about that get, becomes a word of mouth bestseller. The thing that's the hardest to get is that people want to read it because people are reading right. it. Like, and that one is to get momentum behind it is super hard because I think there is a thing we there's been some studies about bestsellers and like books that sell a lot is these aren't just replacement reads like someone read this rather than that they add it to their life like this is a, they right. wouldn't have read a book if they hadn't have read this thing that everyone's talking about they ha- they wouldn't read this book if they didn't get to put their hands by this specific person at this specific time mm-hmm. well and like I think 50 that's shades kind of, of the gray holy is, grail that everyone's yeah. trying to figure out on the supply side of yeah it. i think so too 50 shades of gray i think is the perfect illustration yeah, perfect of what example. you're talking about yeah. there that um it wasn't just every person who reads books was reading that book it was people who don't normally read were picking up that book because of how how it had just permeated culture and everyone was talking about it and people want to be able to talk about the thing that everyone is talking about. You want to be on the inside and like Gone Girl did that. The Girl on the Train is a great example too where publishers I think don't understand this very well most of the time that like Gone Girl becomes a huge success and then we spent like four years in publishing after Gone Girl Uh getting pitched a million thrillers that had the same kind of twist because publishers were like oh it's the thing in Gone Girl that everyone's looking for. So let's keep cranking out books like that. And we'll just pitch everything as the next Gone Girl. But really, the next Gone Girl is doesn't have to be a thriller. It doesn't have to be anything like the contents of the book. Ditto Mm -hmm. for the girl on the train. It has to be the next book that somehow catches on. Like that's what that's code for. And 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 I think that that, the the giving of a potential reader of a book a reason to read it mm -hmm. is the problem. And I think that's hard. I think that's what the New York Times bestseller sticker does. I think that's what the shelf talkers are like getting giving the person the right reason to pick up a book is a very, very powerful thing. But how you do that at scale no one's figured out. And I don't think this will be it. I, you know, Goodreads hasn't figured this out. I don't think Amazon, you go to Amazon, look at like the recommended reads. Like, okay, I was looking at for deals of the day and it was, uh, I can't remember. Oh, uh, Jay Courtney Sullivan's engagement was a deal of the day. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. Mm-hmm. And like here, you might also like all every other Jay Courtney Sullivan book. <laughs> like that's not, I mean, okay. I mean, I guess it's not just, sure. it's better than sort of just randomly pulling ISBNs, but it's also the dumbest possible recommendation, right? Like, right. I don't know. Any, I don't know what you think about like even Netflix recommended viewing for me when like Michelle and I are sitting around like, you know, doing that thing where like half yep. the time is scrolling Netflix. Like mm-hmm. we're not actually watching. We are watching Netflix, but what we're doing is looking for something to watch on Netflix. Right. Is the old equivalent yep. of like spending an hour in Blockbuster kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you look at the recommended watches and like how often you're like, oh, my God, that. Like yeah, zero. I, think I, mean, it, I feel like my, my hit rate is like no, zero. I totally agree. I think it's um, 
it's a case of that so often what we're looking for when we're asking for a book recommendation is about how the book feels or how it makes you feel. Um, And it's not about what the book is about. Like the topic of a book is, is often not terribly important unless you're like, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a new parent and I need books about parenting or I'm trying to learn stuff about Mars. People like when people talk to us and when certainly when they write in to get booked and when our contributors are answering things with each other and writing about books on the site, like a thing that I'm perpetually saying when I'm talking to publishers about how to write better content about books is you use the feelings words, you know, like here's what it's like to be inside the world of this book. And that's what makes a good recommendation. Like, and I think that's the magic that happens between readers, like between passionate book people Mm -hmm. is, Hey, did you read X? Yes. Oh my gosh. Wasn't this like, wasn't this thing great? And yeah. Have you read this other thing? Like, um, Mm -hmm. where the topics might be completely different. Like I loved department of speculation by Jenny awful a couple of Mm -hmm. years ago. And then last year chemistry by wakey Wong, like these books are nothing alike really in terms of their subject Mm. matter, but they're stylistically kind of similar. It feels very similar to read them. And someone was like, Hey, you loved department of speculation. You're going to like chemistry. And I was like, Oh, is it another great, you know, Mm. marriage like angst book? And they were like, Oh, it has nothing to do with that. (laughs) But it was a perfect recommendation because it's about how it feels. Amazon was never going to generate that suggestion. Yeah. And it's the magic, like, you know, and it can be overblown, like indie booksellers, magic of hand selling, blah, blah, blah. But there is something to that mm-hmm. because they're available. Like the open heuristic is available to go talk to them there. They've presumably read a lot of books and they're motivated to find a book for you. To I mean, they have a financial right. incentive mm-hmm. to sell you the book. To, to, to do that at scale um, for an arbitrary customer asking – they don't even know what questions to ask necessarily – um, and then to have some sort of heuristic that can then match it to something based on something other than, you know, the ISBN card catalog featured things or purchase intent of other people who have looked at it. Because some of that's just regression to the mean, right? Regression to the mean of the J. Courtney Sullivan buy is like people who buy J. Courtney Sullivan book, right. the most likely thing they're going to buy out of scale with other purchases are other J. <laughs> that's not – there's nothing there. Um, so, again – I see. I think this is an interesting take. I think it's not radical enough. That's where that, I'm, that's yeah. where I was sort of spinning towards. It's not radical enough of a departure of things that we've seen to 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 uh, I, I guess take off. Yeah, I think to, it also to have results that are out of scale. I think it also misses that. Like, if you're just casting your question out into the like wide blue sea of readers, what's your favorite book about Mars and 20 people answer and you get 20 different books. How you still have to decide between those 20 and how do you like, what do you know about these recommenders? Like that's, one of the other elements of like an, what an independent bookstore can do, what a librarian that you have a relationship can do, what a podcast host that you feel like you mm-hmm. understand and and you know their taste, what that can do, what even what happens between people who become friends on Goodreads, you know, or who become yep. friends on Litzy or book people who follow each other on Instagram. Like you develop some sense for who that recommendation is coming from and then you can wait. 20 people gave me 20 different books, but here is the one to pay attention to because it came from this person that I trust. And so like this could work, but only if you get enough actual community happening within it yeah. that the people receiving answers 
can then filter those answers in terms of how useful they'll be. Because it's just a list of, right. you know, like there are 2 million books about Mars in the world and now I've narrowed it down to 20 from these strangers. Like you, you have narrowed it down, but you still don't have the one or the way to pick the one. Yeah, and I feel like even asking your book about Mars, like the thing they're saying is like, it's almost like they're starting a question too late because the question the reader is really asking is, I'm looking for a book to read. And mm-hmm. you almost want to intervene at that point before the because they've already made a series of choices like do they really want to read about a book about mars or are they just trying to look for some reason to deselect some things because here's the thing about recommendations i think that you were kind of alluding to just a minute ago is the actual book recommended almost doesn't matter if the recommender is right oh for sure i mean that's the other thing that's kind of weird about this is like you know, if you recommend a book to me, I don't necessarily need to be like, and it checks this box and this box and this box. The box, the 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 ur box is the recommendation source is one I trust. Yes, and I don't think that is something that that can be captured by this particular model exactly. and any kind of sort of platform play at scale where mm-hmm. there aren't people actually doing the work of like I know this person or I know something about this platform or source, and you, that's the part to solve. Yeah. Not the crowd, not to get the right book by some sort of objective standard, but to create the environment in which the person picking up the book feels like it might be the right book. Does yes. that make sense? It totally does. And I was, I think, like that everyone who loves books and thinks of themselves as a serious book person has had this experience of like, yeah, my friend who also loves books and who knows me told me that there's this book that I probably would have picked up on my own, but they loved it and they think I'll love it or even they didn't love it, but they think I'll love it, you know, and yeah. recommended it to me. And it's that like, and like you and I have done this with each other <laughs> that, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is going to be a thing you're going to like, and it's coming from me. I know you and you know that I know you. And it's that right. trust, exactly. The trust in the source of the recommendation that I think has to come before like that's the deciding factor if you have a list of 20 recommendations from 20 sources you pick the one you trust more but if you don't yeah, have any way right. to determine which you're one you're not to picking trust, the blurb then... of the 20 choices you're picking the blurb about the person that's right. you know you know like your 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 mental model for that person not not the actual book that's a great that's a great point um that you are you need you need the recommender to be recommended to you mm-hmm. and you know somehow which is impossible Right. I mean, for at scale, that's impossible, uh, at least in this particular format. I don't know. It's curious because, like, it's actually going on. Like, have you seen? Like, I'm keep an eye on the contributor slack because I hadn't mm-hmm. seen that people were talking about. It. It's like everyone's saying basically that all sort of recommendation platforms are garbage. Like that's what they're saying, and I think that's right. I think that's no true. I think it's true. Um, yeah. People are they're trying because this recommendation thing, like it the what is the word i'm looking for uh, word of mouth is powerful and enough word of mouth at scale creates the kind of buzz that turns a book into the girl on the train or you know 50 shades of gray and everybody wants that and everybody wants to be able to create the platform where it happens but it's the community piece that enables rec- that enables trust to occur and then enables the mm-hmm. good recommendations to happen and if you don't build good community or create an environment where people are able to build good community right down to how your ux works then right. then you know like that's it has to be you have to go into the building of an app like this with our our job here is to connect readers to each other um if you're thinking we're just going to make a place where people can ask questions about books and get answers about them you're probably not going to be satisfied with 
what your results are. Yeah, I know. I, it just seems so impossible. It seems so impossible to do in a way that would move the needle for someone like Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Like, think of how many books they'd have to move through this yeah. and win away from some other source to make it worth it. I mean, I guess you have to try, but boy, it seems like an uphill slog. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I think that's our show. I think so, that too. Feels like a show. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple big things. Let's thank our week. sponsors. Okay. Yeah, I thank our sponsors. Instaread. Instaread.co slash book riot. Go check out The Vestigial Heart by Carme Toras, T O R R A S. Go find out about that book if you like robots and books. And go check out Annotated, bookriot.com slash annotated or. Apple Podcasts, or we're also at Google Play. You can get us on Overcast.fm, which is my particular podcatcher of choice. Shout out to Overcast. Uh, That's our show. We'll be back next week, Rebecca. Yeah. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Have a good one.